Good morning. I want to invite you to turn your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 18 as we continue our series on the parables of Jesus. We're looking at Matthew 18, verses 21 to 35. Heavenly Father, again, we lift your name up this morning in praise and in worship. We pray that you would prepare our hearts for what you would have to say to us this morning through your word. I pray that you would uh, make our the ground of our heart fallow, that uh, you would be able to plant your seed of truth deep, that it would make a difference in our hearts and lives, that we might go from this place more in love with Jesus, more committed in our obedience to you. We, Father, thank you for your blessings. We thank you for the love, the forgiveness, the grace, the mercy that you pour out in our hearts and lives. And we just commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. The Bible scholar and uh, pastor N.T. Wright tells a story about an archbishop who was uh, hearing a confession of sin from three hardened teenagers in his church. All three boys were trying to make a joke out of it, and so they met with the archbishop and confessed to a long list of ridiculous and grievous sins that they had not committed. It was all a joke. The archbishop, seeing through their bad practical joke, played along with the first two who ran out of the church laughing. But then he listened carefully to the third prankster, and before he got away, he told the young man, okay, you have confessed these sins. Now I want you to do something to show your repentance. I want you to walk up to the far end of the church, and I want you to look at the picture of Jesus hanging on the cross. And I want you to look at his face and say, you did all that for me, and I don't care all that much. And I want you to say that three times. So the boy went to the front. He looked at the picture of Jesus, and he said, you did all that for me and I don't care all that much. And then he said it again, but then he couldn't say it the third time because he broke down in tears. The archbishop telling the story said, the reason I know that story is because I was that young man. He writes, there is something about the cross, something about Jesus dying there for us, which leaps over all the theoretical discussions, all the possibilities of how we explain it this way or that way, but it grabs us. And when we are grabbed by the cross, somehow we have a sense that what is grabbing us is the love of God. You know, it was Jesus who refused to be bitter toward his torturers and his executioners. It was Jesus who refused to withhold forgiveness to those who worked the system with lies and gossip and slander in resulting in his death. It was Jesus who humbly absorbed the injustice, he endured the unfairness, and he, he suffered the wrong. Not because he had to, but because he chose to. Why? Why would he do that? Because Jesus knew that forgiveness is the ultimate kingdom purpose. Forgiveness, the ultimate kingdom purpose. It's all about the forgiveness of sinners. Forgiveness is the open door that enables us to live with God forever. He not only brought and bought your forgiveness, he demonstrated and he modeled for us what it means to forgive others. Is that easy to do? Not at all. Is it necessary? Absolutely essential in order for us to be whole people, growing and fulfilling our calling to be citizen kingdoms, or, or, kingdoms of the, or citizens of the kingdom, and, and disciples, followers of Jesus Christ. I'll tell you what, in my 35 years of ministry, I've discovered that the number one reason for the breakdown of relationships Number one, nine out of ten times, it's because people have failed to forgive. In any relationship, especially marriage, there is always plenty to forgive. 
But people choose not to forgive. Why? Because it's hard. It's difficult. We hear that song, let it go, let it go. Beautiful song, hard to do. And those who have hurt us or wounded us or offended us or sinned against us, to, to let that go, to forgive, it's hard, it's difficult. And yet we know as Christians, uh, forgiving is not an option. We know that as Christians, it is our sacred duty. It was demanded by Jesus. It's reiterated all through the New Testament. But forgiving, forgiving others is hard. And yet forgiveness is the very center, the very core of the Christian message, the very center of the gospel. Paul writes this in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. When it comes to the keys, we're talking about the keys to the kingdom, the bottom line is forgiveness. In fact, the greatest barrier, uh, the biggest obstacle, basically, to our Christian growth and our maturity and our unity is not really knowing, not really experiencing, and not demonstrating true forgiveness. Jesus even went so far as to warn us in Matthew chapter 6, if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Wow. In other words, if you don't forgive others, God doesn't forgive you. Really? The writer of Hebrews talks about the danger of an unforgiving spirit that has a way of worming its way and, and creeping into the very heart. He writes in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15, See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many are defiled. Many, he's talking to believers, many in the church today are defiled. That word defiled, myono in the Greek, has the idea of being contaminated. It has the idea of being infected. In other words, our heart can be contaminated or infected with the virus of an unforgiving spirit. So when it comes to forgiving others, why is it so difficult? Why is it so hard? One of the major reasons is that we really don't know what biblical forgiveness really looks like. What does it mean to forgive? What does it mean to let it go? Paul tells us, forgive each other just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. How do we do that? How do we live that out in the real world? It's easy to say. It's easy, easy to talk about, but, but difficult to, to work it out. Does forgiving mean trusting another person to the level, the same level they had before the offense, even if they're not trustworthy? Does it give those a right who have offended us to come right back into our life, barge right back in, and as if nothing had happened? Is that what forgiveness means? Does it mean forgetting, letting it go completely out of our mind, out of our heart? Those are tough questions. Does it mean we have to invite them over again for dinner or to Thanksgiving or to that wedding? What does it mean to really forgive? What does it mean to let it go? How do we respond more closely in line with what Scripture tells us forgiveness is all about and what it really looks like? One of the most powerful parables that Jesus ever told is here in Matthew chapter 18. And what we discover is that first and foremost, number one, forgiveness means you don't keep score. Forgiveness means you don't keep score. One day Peter approached Jesus with a question that prompted the telling of this parable. In verse 21, Peter said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? What Peter wanted to know, is there a limit? Is there a ceiling? Is there a cap? To basically, how many times I have to forgive somebody? How about seven? That's a perfect number. Why not that number? 
Is that how many times? That was a tough question. What prompted that question? Because Peter knew exactly what you and I know. It is tough to forgive. It's tough to let it go. How many times do I have to forgive someone? I think Peter was being pretty super spiritual here because the rabbinical teaching, what the rabbis said back then was, you only had to forgive a person three times. And after that, you could hold a grudge. <laughs> and so Peter's thinking, okay, I'm going to be super spiritual here. I'm going to double that a little bit and even more. How about seven? Seven times? And I think... I think Jesus smiled and put his hand on his shoulder and said, Peter, not seven times, 70 times seven. And I'm not, I'm not talking about 490 times. <laughs> In other words, there's no limit to forgiveness. You don't keep score. You don't keep a tally. You keep on forgiving no matter what. Hard to do. But immediately, Jesus gave this powerful parable here in Matthew 18. Follow with me, beginning in verse 20, 23. Jesus said, for this reason, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a certain king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he had begun to settle them, there was brought to him one who owed him 10,000 talents. But since he had, did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, along with his wife and children and all that he had, and repayment to be made. The slave, therefore, falling down, prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him of the debt. But that slave went out, found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii, and he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell down and began to entreat him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. He was unwilling, however, but went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what it was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all the debt because you entreated me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave, even as I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. So shall my heavenly Father also do to you, if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. So what does forgiveness look like? Well, first of all, forgiveness, we know, means you don't keep score. But secondly, our parable tells us here, forgiveness means looking in the mirror. Looking in the mirror. What we have here is an unforgiving servant who comes to the king, and he owed the king a huge chunk of change. I mean, more money than you could possibly imagine. He owed him 10,000 talents. What's a talent? A talent is about 60 to 80 pounds of gold. That's just one talent. And he owed him 10,000. Now, if you do the math, that means he owed the king about $12 million. That's more than you could possibly pay back in a lifetime. Not even a, a nobleman back then made that kind of money. And so if you owed that kind of money, what were you going to do? Well, the only option you had basically was you could liquidate all your assets and sell yourself and your family into slavery for the rest of your life. And even after you died, you probably owed most of that still. He was in deep bandini. <laughs> now, there was only one other option he had, and that's what he did. He fell down on his face, and he said, please forgive me of the debt. And remarkably, the king did just that. He forgave him of the entire 12 million and sent him on his way. Now, if the story ended there, that's a great story. I mean, that's, a, that's good enough. I mean... If you think about it, here's one happy former debtor. 
And it's a powerful illustration of what God has graciously done for us. We are so in debt, we are overwhelmed and, and burdened down and in bondage to our debt of, of, of sin. There's absolutely no way you and I could ever pay for the sin in our lives. Somebody asked, how many sins does it take to deserve hell? How many? Only one. Why is that? James tells us if you're, if you're guilty of just one sin, you're guilty of them all. It's a package deal. And by the way, maybe that's why hell is for eternity. I used to think, why is hell forever? Why can't it be just for a few years? For the bad people, maybe 100 years. I don't know. Why is it forever? Because that's how long it's going to take for a person to pay for their own sin. You see, the principal law of the universe is that sin has to be paid for one way or another. If Jesus doesn't pay for it, you have to pay for it. And that will take forever. Praise the Lord. <laughs> That on the cross he paid our debt in full. A debt that you and I could never pay in all of eternity. Romans 5, 8 says, but God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died so that we wouldn't have to. He paid it so that we wouldn't have to pay it. Praise God for that. That ought to just, <laughs> he set us free from the bondage of sin and debt and canceled out our sin of debt, past, present, and future, now and forever. Praise God for that. But then Jesus hammers home the point here in his parable. He doesn't just stop there. He tells us that that forgiven servant goes out to another servant who owed him about 100 denarii. Now, a denarii, one denarii, is a silver Roman coin. It's worth about 15 cents. And so basically, if you do the math, 100, he only owed him about 15 bucks. And he begged to be forgiven, but the unforgiving servant wouldn't let it go. He wouldn't let him off the hook. He demanded payment immediately. I want my 15 bucks. Show me the money. Just after he had been forgiven 12 million bucks, he would not turn around and, and forgive a guy for 15 bucks. When the king heard this, he was furious. He called the servant back, and get this, he restored the debt back to his account, all 12 million. And then the end of the parable, Jesus gives these chilling words. He says, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. Wow. Here's the bottom line. When it comes to forgiveness, it is foolish to, forgive, to, to refuse to forgive others, no matter what they've done to you, when you compare it to what God has done in, in, in basically liquidating an immense debt, far more than $12 million. How can I not forgive you for whatever you've done to me? When I think about what God has done in, on, my behalf, on my behalf, James chapter 2, verse 10 tells us, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, one point is guilty of them all. How does that look? What's that look like? I've shared the, the illustration before that if you take a Sharpie and you take a huge pane of glass and you, you draw a circle on that pane of glass, it represents the law. You divide that circle up into ten, ten parts, ten little pies on this chart. Each of those represents one of the commandments. Now, you've broken one of them. You take a hammer, and you just try to break out one. One of those, you can't do it. The whole thing shatters. Why? Because the law comes as a package. You break one, you're guilty of them all. Why? Because it only takes one sin to basically uh, be an affront or an offense to a holy, true, and perfect God, the God of the universe, which makes us all guilty of breaking all of, our, all of the law. That's, just, that's why one sin, just one sin, deserves hell. 
which means technically, technically speaking, we are all the equivalent of adulterers, murderers, thieves, and liars in the eyes of the law. Now, some people are more active than others, but the point is, whoever breaks the, whoever keeps the whole law and just stumbles at one point becomes guilty of them all. And, and Romans uh, 3.23 adds, for all have sinned. We've all blown it. We've all fallen short of the glory of God which means that we are all in desperate need of God's righteousness by faith imputed into our account. We're all in desperate need. We are all in debt. And so when he has forgiven me of all my sin, a debt that I could never pay in all of eternity, how can I turn around and not forgive you? The 15 bucks, I don't care what you've ever done to me. It doesn't compare to what God has done on my behalf. It doesn't even come close. And so that's why biblical forgiveness always starts with looking in the mirror. It starts by looking in the mirror. It doesn't start with the wrong that you've done to me. It starts with what I've done to you or others in my lifetime and what I've done to God. And then it offers that same kind of forgiveness to you as well. Paul states, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other. How? Just as God in Christ also forgave you 100%. Easy to do? <laughs> Not at all. Paul writes in Ephesians 4, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. So what else does forgiveness look like? We find out from this parable that forgiveness means you don't keep score, you don't keep a tally. Secondly, forgiveness means looking in the mirror, comparing and understanding what God has done for us. And then thirdly, forgiveness means to rebuke when wronged, forgive when asked. What happens if the person who wrongs us doesn't want to be forgiven? What if that person doesn't repent? They don't stop hurting. They don't stop wounding you. They don't stop offending. They don't stop sinning against you. What are we supposed to do as Christians? Do we ignore it, confront it, teach them a lesson they'll never forget? What are, what are we supposed to do? Didn't Jesus overlook the injustices done to him? Yeah. Didn't he refuse to retaliate? Yes. Didn't he ask the Father to forgive them who, who put him to death? Absolutely. He said to the soldiers who crucified him, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. But here's the point. The Roman executioners had, had no idea what they were doing on a cosmic scale. They didn't know who they were dealing with. But Jesus was not quite so quick to let the Pharisees, the religious leaders, off the hook so easily. In fact, rather than just kind of wave off their transgressions, he threatened them with hellfire. Now, there's no question that as Christians, we are called to forgive. But that's not the same as overlooking everything that somebody does or says. Jesus did say, turn the other cheek. But he said in Luke chapter 17, if your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. In other words, there's a time and place for for confrontation. There's a time and place where you come to people and you say, stop it. There's a time and place for rebuke, for, for pointing out the disapproval and, and displeasure of what's being done, either to you or to others around. God's call to forgive doesn't mean we just go through life as a punching bag or a, a doormat that lights up welcome when somebody steps on us. <laughs> now, that's not what we're called to be. It, it, it doesn't mean that we can't speak up. It doesn't mean that we just roll over. So how are we to respond? Fourthly, forgiveness means letting God take care of it. I'm not going to retaliate. Uh, I'm going to love that person. I'm going to 
pray for that person, but I'm going to let God take care of it. What do you do with a person who uh, continues to hurt and inflict and do wrong, again, to other people or to yourself? How do you respond to the person who won't repent or receive any kind of forgiveness? There's another response. And now this response, as many Christians aren't aware of, is an option, and it's called revenge. Now, understand what I mean here. It may come as a shock, but this is biblically appropriate. It's a different kind of vengeance than what you're thinking. It's not the vengeance of the world that inflicts evil upon evil or evil for evil. For a Christian, that's not an option. Instead, it turns vengeance over to God. We don't think about that. It says, God, you take care of it in your perfect timing. Let me give you an example. The Apostle Paul. Here's a guy that was so eloquent at talking about forgiveness. But he saw no inconsistency in his prayer that God would repay his enemy Alexander, who had caused so much pain, so much suffering in his life. In one passage, he talks about turning Alexander over to Satan. And that God, he says, God repay him. And still another, he says, not to take revenge. And so we are not to do that. But Romans 12, 19 says, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, it is mine to revenge. I will repay, saith the Lord. And so we say, okay, God, I'm going to love him. I'm going to pray for him. Uh, I'll kill him with kindness, and you take care of him. You, you go after him. Now, when we do that, we leave room for the grace of God. God has a way of taking and turning enemies into friends. And, and, and that's what grace is all about. If God chooses to do, to do that, that, that's great. That's part of what it means to let go and let God take care of it. God knows how to work in that person's life and turn that person around. And so we say, Lord, you, you know how to do that. You, you change that heart. I can't do it. I'm going to love them. I'm going to pray for them. I'm going to do good to them. God, you take care of them and, and, and change their heart. And, and if you can't do that, you know how to deal with what's going on here. It, it's surrendering and leaving it up to God to take care where it says, vengeance is mine, I'll repay. God has a way of doing that. He knows what buttons to push and what bells to ring. <laughs> Finally, forgiveness means dealing openly with the trust issue. Does forgiveness uh, mean to restore a, a broken relationship back to its original state? Does, does it mean that we trust that person again after they've offended us or, or wronged us in some grievous way? Does it mean to invite them over to our house for dinner again? I think a lot of people think, yeah, that's what it means. Once they've been forgiven, we, some people expect them to come back with full trust again. But is that realistic? That's often not the case. Trust, close trusting relationships and forgiveness are not necessarily related. And so forgiveness it puts aside the bitterness. It, it makes a commitment to, to not retaliate in any way. But it doesn't mean that that other person is trustworthy again. We don't bring them back and make them our best friend again. Trust has to be earned. Social ties are a privilege. We don't owe people trust. We owe them love. We owe them forgiveness. But trust has to be earned. So how do we get there? Let me, let me give you a couple of things uh, that have worked for me over the years. Uh, number one, when it comes to those who have offended you or hurt you, number one, pray for them. Uh, pray for them. Not necessarily God sick them, <laughs> but pray for them. If someone continues to come after you, pray. Uh, but pray that God would open their eyes and, and, and change their heart and, and maybe restore that relationship that they, they need to have with God and, and with maybe yourself and others as well. Pray for them, even if you don't feel like it, especially if you don't feel like it. Why? Because feelings are not a part of obedience. If I don't feel like doing something, that's a sure tale sign that maybe I should do it. 
uh, I obey because I'm called to regardless. So I pray for them. Secondly, not only pray for them, but return good for the evil that's done to you. Romans 12, 21 says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now that's counterintuitive. That's hard to do. Do good for someone after they've cursed you? To bless them? I don't know how you're going to do that, but pray how God would help you to do good to those that have done evil to you. Bless them, even if you don't feel like it, especially if you don't feel like it. Sometimes, again, that's one of the best indicators of, of something you should do. When you don't feel like it, realize that your emotions are not always the best indicator of what is right and wrong. We obey because God tells us to. Return good for the evil that's been done to you. Again, I'm not sure how you might want to do that, but pray about that. And number three, finally, bathe in God's forgiveness for you. One of the best ways I can think of is when I realize that what God has done in, in, in forgiving me of far more than $12 million, how can I not forgive others no matter what they've done? I have to bask in his forgiveness. Remember, remember the story of the, of the traveler who was going through the deepest jungles of Burma. He had a guide, and they were going across a, a shallow river up to about their chest, and as they got to the other side, the traveler came up and realized that, to his dismay, that he was covered with leeches. And, and his immediate instinct was to grab those leeches and tear them out of his, off his skin, but the guide said, don't do that. If you do that, you'll leave a part of that leech under the skin, it'll get infected, and in this jungle weather, you'll be in more trouble than you could possibly imagine. The guide says the best way to get rid of leeches, the guide told him, was to bathe in the warm balsam bath for several minutes. And when you soak in that balsam bath, those leeches begin to, begin to just let go, and, and that's how you get rid of them. When I've been significantly injured by another person, I can't just simply yank the injury away and expect all that bitterness and all that malice and all that raw emotion to just disappear. Resentment still hides under the surface. And it'll rear its ugly head once in a while. The only way I can truly be free of that offense is to forgive another person by soaking in the warm bath of what God has done for me and his forgiveness of me. And that's precious. When I fully understand the extent of God's love in Jesus Christ for what he's done for me, the very least I can do is to forgive you for the 15 bucks that you owe me. i got to let it go. When I remember that he has forgiven me, again, far more, I have to let it go. When I realize that what God has done for me, all I can do is, number one, pray for you. Number two, return good for evil. Bless you instead of cursing you for cursing me. And thirdly, bathe in God's forgiveness of me. Will you be the kind of person who you claim to, to love and to follow Jesus? Will you withhold the very thing he has died for? May it never be. May you be a child of God where forgiveness is freely given because of what Christ has done for you. May you be a, a child of God where there's no bitterness, no anger, no, no unforgiving spirit that reigns in your heart. May we be the kind of church where forgiveness is not something we just talk about but that we tangibly and practically and intentionally forgive one another. And there'll always be plenty to forgive. May we be a church family where we have a reputation for being loving and gracious and compassionate, and where that grace and that mercy is alive and well within our church family. It is. May it continue to be. 
May we be a church family where we handle our differences, we handle our conflicts, conflicts biblically, and we allow Christ to, to rule and his spirit to, to reign. May we be a church family where we follow Jesus in probably one of the most difficult and, and the hardest area, personal relationships. We're porcupines. We're going to poke one another and hurt one another once in a while. We have to forgive. It's all about forgiveness and moving on and growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's a, a major key to the kingdom. The bottom line, forgiveness, no matter what the cost. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we are reminded in this parable of what you have called us to be and what you've called us to do, and it's hard. Lord, in and of ourselves, we can't do it. We all are here this morning, and we can think of people that we're really frustrated and angry with. And maybe there's some people in our life right now that we're bitter toward, and we don't want to forgive them. We don't want to let it go. And so, Father, by your Spirit, I pray that you would help us to deal with those leeches that rob us of our faith and joy. Father, I pray that you would help us to take those things and to realize what you have done for us. And as the, the servant in our parable, just to simply move forward, absorb it, do what Christ did, love them, do good for them, pray for them. I pray, Lord, that you would uh, help us to deal with those, those people in our lives. And all of us here, there are certain images, certain faces that come to mind right away. Maybe they're parents, maybe they're children or friends, family members, neighbors, maybe even people in the church. So, Father, I pray that you would help us to take that and, and, and surrender it to you. Lord, we thank you so much for your, your grace, your mercy, your love. You have poured it out in our hearts and lives. Help us to be disciples, followers of Jesus Christ, citizens of your kingdom that are worthy to be called Christians, followers of Jesus. And so, Father, I pray that you would uh, continue to enable us by your spirit, because in and of ourselves, we can't do it. And so we surrender our heart, we surrender our life to you again, daily, moment by moment, as we want to keep our eyes focused on Jesus, to be molded and shaped into his image. In all that we say and do, may, Father, you be glorified, you be honored. May we be a church on a like a, a, a light on a, on a hill, shining brightly, radiating the love of Jesus to everyone around us in a dark and dying world desperately in need of a Savior. We thank you, Father, for the relationship we have with you. We thank you and praise you. May we grow and be all that you've called us to be. In Jesus' precious name and all God's children said, amen.